0: Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Tony Brew, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Hannah Abrams. Hey, Hannah. Hello, hello. And Avi Cooper. Good evening, Avi.
1: Good evening. And we happen to be recording tonight on National Women Physicians Day, so happy National Women (laughs) (laughs) Physicians Day, Hannah, Dr. Abrams.
2: Thanks, guys. (laughs) Happy National Women's Physicians Day.
1: It's also the birthday of Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell.
0: Oh, no kidding. Oh, cool. Fantastic. All right, so on this episode, um, we're going to investigate why propofol can cause something uh, entitled the propofol-related infusion syndrome, or PRIS. So, Avi, I, you know, I think it's kind of important to start with the basics, and the basic here for me, a non-critical care uh, physician, is what is propofol. Let's let's remind the audience a little bit about it.
1: Yeah, and before I do. I just wanted to say that I think this is a really interesting topic with a lot of layers. And we use propofol a lot in the ICU, and we reflexively order monitoring labs like creatine kinase or CK levels, but we don't necessarily fully understand why we're doing that. And it's also fascinating that this drug has its own syndrome, I think. So this is really why I'd wanted to to tackle this. But back to propofol itself. So Propofol is a sedative hypnotic medication that we use in the ICU all the time, and anesthesiologists use it really commonly in the operating room as well, both to induce general anesthesia and to maintain that sedation during procedures. And it has a lot of advantages compared to other continuous sedative um, agents, mainly because it has both a quick onset and a quick offset of action. And I've seen it called milk of amnesia because of its amnestic properties and uh, milky white color.
2: Yeah, moon juice. I uh, I've also seen it used as like an anti-epileptic or, or used in severe alcohol withdrawal um, because it's sort of GABAergic inhibiting.
1: Yeah, totally. And you know, in many ways, it's the optimal sedative agent for patients in the ICU if they require sedation on the ventilator. But we always do try to, you know, of course, minimize the degree to which patients are sedated when receiving mechanical ventilation. But it has a lot of advantages, even though we're talking about some of the disadvantages tonight.
2: Yeah. Okay. So. Now that we've talked about propofol, what it is, uh, what it looks like when it is hanging in its splendor at the bedside, can you explain to us what propofol-related infusion syndrome or PRIS is?
1: Yeah. So propofol was developed and first used clinically in the 1970s. And then in the 1980s and 1990s, reports started to emerge specifically of pediatric patients in the ICU who'd received high-dose extended propofol infusions. And they then developed this curious constellation of symptoms. They got rhabdomyolysis with like frank muscle necrosis. They had bradyarrhythmias. They had cardiovascular collapse. They had lactic acidosis and multi-organ system failure. And it seemed to clearly link to the propofol infusion. Um, And certainly adults can be affected too, but it seemed like kids were sort of more susceptible. So those were the first reports of this propofol-related infusion syndrome.
0: It it, it certainly sounds like – a syndrome related to infusion of propofol. So, talk about a a, a well named entity. Apropos, yeah, exactly. But I'll be honest, I'm I'm having some trouble tying in these, as you said, you know, curious constellation of symptoms like rhabdo and bradyarrhythmias and lactic osidosis. So, I feel like we've got um a bit of a journey along pathophysiology road ahead of us, because because I'm I'm not seeing the the connection just yet.
1: Well, the initial insult seems to be muscle necrosis. And this typically involves skeletal muscle, but also cardiac muscle as well. And these different types of muscular necrosis lead to the rhabdomyolysis, the cardiac dysfunction if you know the heart's involved, and then multi-system organ failure. But it all seems to start with something going wrong in muscles. And again, it's important to note that this seems to be sort of a dose dependent phenomenon right so higher doses with longer infusion times seem to be key to patients being at risk for this syndrome
2: okay so propofol causes a dose dependent reaction of muscle necrosis but why does like my favorite medicine cause muscle <laughs> necrosis
1: <laughs> right like why would it do that and so one really important clue was from a study in rats published in the journal Biochemical Pharmacology in 1991. So the researchers studied isolated rat liver mitochondria, and they found that when rat rat mitochondria were exposed to high doses of propofol, their production of ATP dropped dramatically. Essentially, these mitochondria, when they got exposed to the high doses of propofol, stopped producing ATP. So if I learned
0: anything from biochemistry, it's that ATP uh, kind of is important, uh, so I would suspect if you shut down ATP production in any tissue, that that wouldn't be good. But how do we know that propofol is doing this and how do we know it's doing it in muscle cells?
1: Yeah. So to answer that exact question, a study in critical care medicine from 2000 exposed isolated guinea pig hearts to varying doses of propofol. And the researchers found that higher doses of propofol led to a steep drop in oxygen utilization, which is... If you think about it, sort of a proxy for mitochondrial function and ATP production because oxygen is what fuels that process through aerobic respiration. So their actual experiment looked at what happened to the oxygen saturation of myoglobin molecules with propofol exposure. And they found a dose response curve where high concentrations of propofol led to higher myoglobin saturations. So if you think about it, if more myoglobin was able to get saturated with oxygen Implied that oxygen didn't get utilized by the mitochondria of these guinea pig hearts, which itself implied that the mitochondria had been poisoned by propofol.
2: It's kind of like a high mixed venous O2, except it's like a high mitochondrial <laughs> venous O2. Okay. So summarizing so far, when we give high doses of propofol for a long period of time, we can see propofol-related infusion infusion syndrome, or PRIS, specifically in kids, but definitely also in adults. And the syndrome has a couple different factors. So there's rhabdo, cardiac dysfunction, multi-system organ failure, bradyarrhythmias, but really the, the crux of it seems to be this muscle necrosis, both skeletal and cardiac. And we, we now know that probably some component of this is from poisoning the muscular mitochondria and decreased ATP production. So wait, why does propofol poison the mitochondria? Is i guess our next step.
1: Yeah, this is the crux of the issue and so one potential mechanism is that propofol can block the function of coenzyme Q, which is an important electron carrier in the electron transport chain. So this would inhibit the function of the electron transport chain and decrease ATP production.
0: All right, that's pretty tidy. Um, I feel like often we need to have an explanation of twenty-five layers. So, are we? Is this a single-layer coenzyme Q ten explanation, or is there more to it, Avi?
1: You're totally right, and that actually isn't the whole story. So, an important clue to another mechanism for propofol mitochondrial toxicity is that patients with Pris have actually been found to have elevated serum levels of free fatty acids. And these include the long-chain free fatty acid C5 acylcarnitine and the short-chain free fatty acid melanocarnitine. So any guesses as to why this might be significant in this context?
2: Oh boy, throwing it back <laughs> to the, the biochemistry. So free fatty acids, uh, fuel source for the cell. So <laughs> perhaps we have these poisoned mitochondria and if they're not getting, we see elevated free fatty acids, does it mean that the mitochondria are not getting access to the free fatty acids as sort of like a fuel?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And so free fatty acids mobilize from fat tissue and then get oxidized by mitochondria. And this oxidation generates ATP via the electron transport chain. So they're an important source of ATP for tissues and particularly muscle. Which sort of you know churns through a lot of ATP to function, and this is particularly true during critical illness, where free fatty acids actually can become a primary fuel source for the body in this sort of catabolic state. Which, um, when people aren't critically ill, are not as reliant on free fatty acids as cellular fuel. All
0: right. So, so kind of reiterating what what Hannah said is the idea again that in the setting of propofol infusion the elevation in the free fatty acids is a suggestion that they're not being utilized by the mitochondria in a way that they otherwise would?
1: That's exactly right. And it seems to be that propofol inhibits the ability of mitochondria to utilize free fatty acids as oxidative fuel. All right. But what's the mechanism? So patients with PRIS actually have elevated levels of both long and short-chain free fatty acids, like we said. And this is significant because each type of fatty acid has its own mechanism of entering mitochondria to be used as oxidative fuel. So long-chain free fatty acids require conjugation to carnitine in order to cross the mitochondrial membrane. They then undergo oxidation, they get converted to acetyl-CoA, and then they get utilized for ATP production as part of the Krebs cycle. Short-chain free fatty acids, on the other hand, can cross the mitochondrial membrane even without conjugation. They go straight into oxidation and conversion to acetyl-CoA prior to being used for ATP production. So the fact that both short and long-chain free fatty acids are increased in PRIS suggests that propofol can inhibit both free fatty acid conjugation and oxidation as a mechanism of mitochondrial toxicity.
2: Okay, so, so rounding that up, we talked about the sort of variety of different ways in which propofol might be affecting the way that the mitochondria work. We first mentioned that high doses of propofol can poison the mitochondria and decrease ATP production by blocking the electron transport chain by inhibiting coenzyme Q production, which seems bad. And then we also just talked about that PRIS can develop because propofol is blocking how the mitochondria are using free fatty acids, both long and short. So long by conjugation and short by oxidation all of this leads to decreased ATP production, muscular necrosis, and the clinical syndrome that we know as PRIS.
1: Yeah, that's it. That's it in a nutshell. And I'll just add that PRIS may, in a sort of basic fundamental way, just be a problem of inadequate fuel supply for increased metabolic demand during critical illness. So remember, being critically ill, it's a massively stressful state for the body. And if tissues like muscles especially like the heart, don't have adequate fuel for their metabolism, they're not going to thrive. And that's exactly what we see with the muscular necrosis that seems to be sort of that inciting event that sets off this kind of catastrophe that is propofol-related infusion syndrome.
0: So you mentioned earlier that this is kind of – it was first described in kids, and, and I, I don't know if you said there was that they're more susceptible to it, but why would that difference exist? I mean, I would think if anything – Kids have less muscle mass than adults. Like, you know, so what's going on here?
1: Yeah, I don't know if that's really well worked out why kids seem to be more susceptible, but it may reflect decreased glycogen stores in kids and the muscles of kids. And there's also, there may be a higher reliance on free fatty acids as a fuel source in critical illness, but that's honestly conjecture. Hmm.
2: Yeah, this you know I've never seen a patient with propofol infusion syndrome and I I've, I've seen a decent number of patients on propofol and so all of this discussion really like drives home for me why we check these CK levels so regularly in patients on propofol.
1: Totally, totally. In, in my experience as well I've never seen it clinically myself and that's because PRIS is entirely preventable. So the risk of propofol in adults, it's, it's really, really quite low if you avoid excessively high doses over long periods of time. And if you stop propofol infusion, when the patient's creatine kinase level begins to rise, the patient will not get Pris. It won't happen. And I also want to, you know, emphasize that there's something that I said at the beginning, That again, propofol is sort of, it's probably my favorite sedative. And for patients in the early phase of critical illness, if they require continuous sedation, it has so many advantages. So, again, this podcast was not meant to malign (laughs) propofol whatsoever. Um, I'm really a big fan of it. But it is worth understanding the pathophysiology of PRIS and how to prevent it. It's why we check these labs so diligently. And when they start to rise, it really is a good idea to say, you know, we should switch to something else or find some other sedation plan because preventing PRIS is uh, obviously very important. So so this is
0: really fascinating, Avi. And so um, maybe you can take us through some take-home points.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So propofol-related infusion syndrome Is characterized by skeletal and cardiac muscular necrosis, which leads to the clinical syndrome of PRIS. And blockade of free fatty acid utilization in mitochondria by propofol probably is the main reason. Blocking of free fatty acid utilization in mitochondria by propofol causes decreased ATP production, and that may be the main mechanism of propofol related infusion syndrome. But blockade of coenzyme Q function in, in the electron transport chain probably also plays a role. And this essentially is a mismatch. Between metabolic energy supply and demand during critical illness, that leads to muscle necrosis, but it's entirely preventable with appropriate dose limits, proper CK monitoring, and cessation of the drug when there are early signs of muscle injury arising.
2: All right. So that wraps up another episode of the Curious Clinicians. Thank you, as always, for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. We are excited to partner with VCU Health and offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to this episode. For more information, you can visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash Curious Clinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians.